Good evening, everyone. My name is Casey Dow. Uh, I'm an associate professor of urology at the University of Michigan, and I have the privilege of directing the Music Rocks Initiative. Tonight, uh, our webinar focuses on a comprehensive approach to ureteral stent use. Uh, so thank you so much up front for your attendance. Who are we? Uh, MUSIC uh, stands for the Michigan Urological Surgery Improvement Collaborative. And our mission is simply stated to be a community that partners to improve patients' lives by inspiring high-quality care through data-driven best practices, education, and innovation. We encompass three initiatives focusing on prostate cancer, kidney stones, and small renal masses. And we have uh, providers uh, and practices that participate from all over the state of Michigan, fondly known as the Mitten. We've expanded our work to include sites outside of the state of Michigan, so-called outdoor music sites, uh, along the eastern seaboard and, and most recently down at the University of Florida in Gainesville, which provide a robust and diverse group of patients that are benefiting from ongoing uh, quality improvement work to complement our work in the state of Michigan. Reducing Operative Complications from Kidney Stones, or ROCKS initiative, is comprised of 238 urologists that maintain uh, and put cases into a prospective clinical registry that now has more than 50,000 cases between ureteroscopy and shockwave blithotripsy. We have uh, five patient advocates who are key uh, stakeholders in our engagement uh, across the kidney stone spectra. And this has led to substantial uh, work insofar as peer-reviewed publications uh, and uh, work uh, on a scholarly basis. One of the first things that we tackled in the state of Michigan was uh, the unacceptably high rate of emergency department visits that occurred after ureteroscopy. This is a recent publication that plotted a national uh, uh, sample uh, of commercially insured adults represented in the blue lines, ED visit rates within 30 days of ureteroscopy versus what we're seeing in the state of Michigan plotted in red. And what you can see is the quality improvement work that we've undertaken in the state of Michigan has resulted in some of the lowest emergency department visit rates in the country for those undergoing ureteroscopy, which far outpaced national means. What we learned very early on is that ureteral stents, which are the subject of this webinar, are associated with ED visits. If we look at patients who are stented after ureteroscopy, their ED visit rate is 25% higher uh, than those who have a stent that is not placed, uh, which is a substantial uh, uh, issue for patients uh, and their well-being. So not surprisingly, uh, when we look at patient-reported outcomes, this is data from the collaborative, stented patients report higher levels of pain at 7 to 10 days after surgery than those in whom a stent is not placed. I think, though, it's important to anchor our experience on an actual patient. So I'm sure that the physicians on this webinar uh, are sometimes plagued by these surveys from patients which are often published. But this is a patient of mine who uh, succinctly stated that Dr. Dow is great. I, I take very little credit for that. But her comment is that stents are not. I had a stent after recent stone surgery. It was so miserable that I could not do anything, all caps highlighted. Ultimately, I had to move my family in with my parents for the week because I couldn't care for my toddler or dog. So yeah, we can say stents are associated with ED visits. We can show that patients are bothered. But when you put it on a per patient level, you can see that this has a substantial negative impact for folks. And what's somewhat stark is that if we look at the data from our collaborative, despite our efforts to reduce stent placement after uncomplicated ureteroscopy, we see that stenting rates are relatively flat across the collaborative from 2018 to 2022 at around 75%. Thus, we thought this webinar would be uh, very important for participating urologists and clinicians. We've done several things to try to tackle preoperative stenting, uh, education and post-operative pain management and what to expect with a stent, we've, in a sense, discussed which patients are appropriate and inappropriate for stent omission using 
um, some rigorous methodology. But what we haven't really tackled to this point uh, is what we can provide as far as operative techniques in the operating room that might help us omit ureteral stents in uncomplicated patients. So with that, we have two esteemed expert surgeons, Dr. Mantu Gupta from Mount Sinai, Dr. Amy Cranbeck, uh, who is the chief of endourology and stone disease at, the, at Northwestern Medicine, as well as several featured surgeons uh, that will be discussing with us a variety of different topics today around comprehensive stent use. So just by way of a bit of an agenda for the rest of the discussion tonight, which we're very excited about, we're going to begin by talking about perioperative counseling and optimization of pain management in stented patients, briefly discuss criteria for stent omission after uncomplicated ureteroscopy, and then go into the meat of this webinar, which is some high-yield video vignettes highlighting surgical techniques that might help, might help avoid ureteral stents, and then finally close with how we should optimize stent duration and material in those patients in whom a stent is placed. So with that, I thank you for your initial attention and attendance at this webinar, and I'll be turning things over to my good friend, Dr. Carla Witzke, to talk to us about perioperative counseling and pain management. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Hi, everybody. I'm Carla Witzke. I'm one of the community urologists based out of Midland, Michigan. Um, we are in an area that serves most of the middle of uh, Michigan, as well as the UP and upper portion of the state. There's approximately a million residents. Anywhere, uh, my OR days can go from eight to 15 ureteroscopy cases. So we're pretty busy here. I'd like to introduce you to um, one of our patients, Mike, who is vacationing and had an unexpected health episode. He's going to talk to us about his experience with the stent. July 14th at uh, five minutes to seven in the morning, I was on vacation uh, elsewhere in the state and uh, realized that um, I was experiencing an issue. And through the process of trying to figure out what was going on and, and my wife uh, getting me to the hospital safely, um, realized that it was a kidney stone that was the source of my pain. The decision was made to go in and, and remove it. Uh, it was removed, a stent was, uh, was put into place. Um, after the removal of the kidney stone and the implant, implantation of the stent, um, I was not given very much information at all as it relates to what I could or should expect, as it relates to pain, as it relates to how to remove the stent uh, safely. And um, the indication was to do that after a week. Again, the pain was, was very significant for two and a half weeks. Um, I didn't sleep for more than 45 minutes at a time. Um, I often found myself in such a um, state of pain that uh, I, I would resort to strange um, uh, sitting situations or standing, or I even tried standing in my head. I didn't know who to call. Um, I was given this list of prescriptions uh, for, for various reasons. Um, and then I didn't know who to call to have a conversation around, is there another alternative that I should consider? Um, are there, is there a replacement that I could try that may help to manage the pain uh, in a more effective manner? And, and that didn't happen. And so I really felt kind of helpless. Very, very painful. Um, probably the most pain I've ever experienced in my life. Um, yeah, had me asking questions, you know, what could be going wrong? 
um, how can I improve the situation and uh, what is it I can be doing to get on that path to recovery. It went on uh, for, for well over uh, two and a half weeks uh, before um, I think resolution was, um, was realized and it was a couple of surgeries uh, later that, um, that I was able to uh, get back to normal and um, have a more normal and pain-free lifestyle. So what are some of the things that we can do to help so we don't have patients have this similar experience? This is our stent leaflet that can be given to patients preoperatively in our office when we're getting them set up for ureteroscopy or a planned stage procedure with stenting. Another is a stent video. There's a QR code that can be accessed. I use this very frequently. On the back of my badge, I actually have this QR code. And it's very helpful to tell, go over in detail what a stent is, if you have a string on your stent, how to remove it, what are some realistic expectations. It's a very in-depth, very helpful video. Um, and it is, again, on their discharge paperwork when they leave the hospital. So in case you're meeting a patient and you're not in your office, but in a, a hospital setting, this is a very useful video that talks about the symptoms. Finally, there's um, post-operative counseling. That's another issue which we heard from our patient. What's normal? When should they seek attention? You heard him tell us that he had a list of medications but wasn't really sure what they did. This brochure goes over with pictures what symptoms they might have and which one of the prescriptions is meant specifically for that symptom to alleviate it. In addition, we use the opioid-free pain management, which involves NSAIDs usually given such as Tordal or Ketordalac intraoperatively, and our postoperative uh, bundle, which involves, again, Ketordalac for home use, Tamsulosin, Oxybutynin, and Acetaminophen. Um, and we also use for a short course peridium to help with that burning. Uh, we also have just a reminder of the contraindications for these medicines. So looking at opioid-free pathway doesn't impact pain or satisfaction from the Journal of Urology. If we turn our attention to the screen on the left, we can see that whether or not you give patients narcotics, for the first seven days, there's a decrease where we have a crossover where it becomes equivocal. The use of narcotics or non-narcotics shows the same um, improvement with the uh, uh, outcomes following your ureteroscopy as far as intensity. And turning our attention to the uh, graph on the right, we can see that the satisfaction is also similar with whether or not we're using narcotics or not. And from the Gold Journal, the um, opioid-free pathway doesn't increase ED visits. Looking at this study from 2016 to 2019, if we turn our attention to the blue line, which indicates the prescriptions of narcotics at almost 95% at that on that year where we tried to decrease that to 2019, which decreased drastically to approximately 50%. We see that the posterioroscopy ED visits, which are denoted by the red bars, also decreases from 10% down to just above 6%. So the take-home messages from this are we'd like to use multifaceted patient, ed patient education in the perioperative period, as well as the postoperative period. And pain optimization is important and can be standardized. And often we don't need to use narcotics. This, this omission does not negatively impact the patient experience. And now I'd like to hand this off to Dr. DiBianco. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Witzke. And thank you to Dr. Ghani and Dr. Dow and the entire music collaborative. My name is John Michael Bianco, and I'm an endocrinologist at the University of Florida. 
And I'm back to talk about what else? Ureteral stents and stenting practices. It may come as no surprise to those of you who treat kidney stones, but ureteral stents are problematic. And they are problematic not just for patients, but for both patients and caregivers alike. They can cause significant pain and bothersome symptoms. Often, these symptoms require multi-pronged treatment approaches, which has been shown to put patients at significant risk of persistent opioid use well after the stone has been treated. Utilizing a validated pain index scoring survey, we examined data from Music Rocks patient, patient Reported Outcomes, or Rocks Pro. And as you can see, patient reported pain scores are significantly higher one week after treatment in patients who received a urethral stent in the light blue line, as opposed to those who underwent stent omission in the dark blue line. Not only do stents cause significant symptoms, but prior work by Dr. Hiller and the ROCKS team demonstrated that even after risk adjustment, stent placement increased the odds of an ED visit by 25%. So if stents are so bad, then there must be a really good reason why we place so many of them. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Our own guidelines advocate for a selective approach to stenting. They advise stent omission after uncomplicated ureteroscopy in the following, if the following criteria are met. That includes no suspected ureteral injury, no evidence of anatomical obstruction, normal contralateral kidney, no renal function impairment, and no secondary ureteroscopy being planned. Despite the morbidity described, and our guidelines, stenting after ureteroscopy remains very common, but it does have wide variability. This is data from the same paper, which demonstrates the stenting rates of music urologists after ureteroscopy. And as you can see, rates range from 0% to 100%, regardless of case volume. And this indicates, at least to me, that the decision to place or not place a stent, as well as changing urologist behavior, to align with guideline recommendations are tough nuts to crack. And the question is, what could music do to address this problem? Well, Music Rocks conducted a RAND UCLA appropriateness criteria panel on stent omission. This was a rigorous process that involved 134 clinical scenarios evaluated by 15 music urologists and moderated by both a local and invited expert urologist. This was a two-part process that was recently published in Urology Practice, and we thank those of you on the panel for your time and dedication. Ultimately, this process helped us define what an uncomplicated ureteroscopy means clinically. These were the patient and operative characteristics deemed necessary to be considered uncomplicated. However, this in itself is quite complicated. These were thus condensed to the critical clinical variables that require consideration, which includes pre-stented status, stone location, infectious concerns, access sheet use, the need for ureteral dilation, and fragment size after treatment. From this, the Music Rock Stent Omission Appropriateness Criteria was born, and the sky was the limit. What could go wrong? Well, when we examined the data, stenting rates actually increased from 73% prior to implementation to 77% afterwards, indicating again 
that this may be even a tougher nut to crack. Then a light bulb moment occurred when examining the scent appropriateness criteria and performing a no-touch technique of uroscopy. It occurred to us that a pre-scented patient is a fundamentally different clinical scenario with a very open ureter, as you can see here. And this is a common finding in these patients. So we dug deeper. Prior work indicates that pre-scented patients undergoing ureteroscopy have improved outcomes, including higher tone-free rates, shorter operative times, decreased reoperation rates, and reduced operative complications. However, when we re-examined the music data, the stenting rate in pre-scented patients had not budged. And these patients were stented at a rate of 65%. We then did a deeper dive into this patient population, which represents over a third of ureteroscopies in music. We specifically examined and compared pre-scented patients versus non-pre-scented patients undergoing uncomplicated ureteroscopy. We found and published that pre-scented patients that underwent stent omission had lower ED visit rates, lower hospitalization rates, and higher stone-free rates. Therefore, moving forward, perhaps the answer is to keep it simple. And in the immortal words of Casey Dow, if the patient is pre-scented and has a pulse, they are appropriate for stent omission. And given the number of ureteroscopies performed in this statewide collaborative annually, if the scenting rate of pre-scented patients is decreased to 35%, there would be 850 fewer patients receiving a stent, leading to less ED visits, less phone calls, less patient morbidity, and less cost. So, what have we learned on this journey? Stent placement is common in Michigan and leads to significant patient morbidity. And I can attest that it is also common in the state of Florida. But we have also learned that scenting rates remain unchanged despite panel recommendations. And based on the data and improved outcomes, the pre-stented patient represents the ideal clinical scenario and a unique opportunity for stent omission. And we currently have an incredible opportunity to decrease stenting rates by specifically targeting this population. So thank you all for listening and the opportunity. Casey, let's bring it back to the whole group to discuss these topics and more. Thank you very much, John. Uh, that was a, a great rundown, um, two excellent uh, talks. Um, uh, I have a couple panelists that are joining me uh, right now, um, uh, as well as a patient advocate. So um, currently we have uh, uh, Margot Kielhorn, who's a, a patient who's experienced ureteroscopy. We'll hear her story shortly, as well as Carla Witzke, who you heard talk about patient education, and John DiBianco. Um, I think the best thing that we do in quality improvement research and in Michigan in particular is to make sure that we're hearing the patient voice. And so, you know, vital to our understanding of the journey is really um, diving deep into what a patient experiences. So Margo, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and kind of briefly telling us what your experience was with your readeroscopy and stents in particular. Okay. Um, Margo Kielhorn, I'm a 72 year old female patient with a history of uh, Crohn's disease and uh, four um, subsequent bowel resections. Uh, therefore, I have uh, clearly some absorption problems and I have been experiencing kidney stones fairly regularly since 1996. And I probably had, because I haven't counted, uh, about somewhere between nine to 11 uh, at this point. 
Uh, my last one uh, was under the care of Dr. Ghani, and that was in September of 1920, for which I did have a ureteroscopy with a stent placement. Um, I have not had the difficulty with stents that the other gentleman mentioned. Uh, I will say that I've had some mild to moderate discomfort during the stent period while it was in. Would prefer not to have one. And the only uh, real negative experience I've had besides that discomfort is that I do have a tendency to develop UTIs after I have a stent because I've had several stents in the past, uh, having had other ureteroscopies and lithotripsies. And I think I passed a stone once or twice. So I think so then my question to you, Margo, is um, kind of recognizing that there's a spectrum, right? Your experience yeah. might be a little bit more benign than Mike Witt, who is kind of yep. one of the early advocates that we had on board. How best do we convey to patients what they may experience with this stent? What I'm getting at is, do we educate you at the time we meet you in the office, again at the time of surgery, and then postoperatively? How would you like to get that information? I would like it at the earliest point possible so that I could consider, you know, especially if there are good materials, obviously are being developed now. Um, and then just a quick review at the time of surgery saying you know, we may or may not, you know, have to place it. So if you wake up with one, you know, don't be surprised. We'll try not to if that's the agreed upon plan. But you, of course, always want to know what the possibilities are. Um, I think the print materials are great. Uh, because I have a, um, a, a visual disability, I have recommended that anything that's provided be available to uh, be used with readers or, or just mentioned that oftentimes PDFs do not allow uh, uh, people with dis uh, visual disabilities to, to be able to listen to. Uh, to the text that's on the page because it's actually an image. It's not no longer text. So anything that is, you know, put out there, if there's possible that uh, for uh, disability purposes, a text uh, copy also be made available because that can more easily be accessed by people with visual impairments. No, that's really helpful. And I, I know it's somewhat presumptive. Um, oh. You know, we, we are t treating patients that are at, at a very young age, adolescents, patients all the way into their 80s and in some cases even beyond. Um, I, I do think one of the things that might be beneficial for the visually impaired um, uh, is is the video that we created with the Urology Care Foundation. I know, Carla, you said in your talk that you actually keep the QR code on the back of your badge. I've never heard that before. That's a brilliant way to just kind of get the patient to even be able to use their smartphone, even in pre-op or post-op to look at it. Have you found that 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 people are using it in that format or, or what? Are you asking Carla or me? I, asking Carla. And then I'd like to know, uh, Margo, if you've used the uh, uh, use the uh, um, Urology Care Foundation video. Go ahead, Carla. I think you're muted, Carla. Yeah. Go ahead and tell us, Margo, about how um, uh, you I might have, use the video. I would. I have not used a video like that in the past, but I've used similar videos for patient education very successfully. And the one thing that Carla mentioned in her presentation that sounded terrific to me was the uh, identification of post-operative symptoms and what medications are good for which one. That, that was something I've never seen before. 
or heard of having that information available post-op. So I th- that would avoid a whole lot of phone calls to, to the office afterwards. I think that's great. Yeah, I try to set uh, patients up with that beforehand because they're, especially when we're just meeting in that area, I'll sit next to their bedside and really try to tell them what to expect afterwards, that on their discharge, they're going to have paperwork to look at. And sometimes when they come back and they tell me they had a bad experience, I do ask them, did you look through all the discharge paperwork? And often I find they did it. So, and the, the trick with the QR code is actually something I have to give credit to my one of my nurse practitioners, Sarah, who that was her idea. And so all of my staff and myself have that on our badge, which makes it really easy because if you're waiting in your room to be brought down to pre-op, you've got time. They can just scan that right away before they're getting any anesthesia to look at that and to listen to it. Uh, even if it's difficult to, um, ha- if you have visual difficulties to hear, that video would be helpful as well. So one thing I'd like to ask the clinicians, um, uh, John and uh, Carla, one of the things that you highlighted, Carla, which I think is great, and Margo, you keyed into this a little bit. So we have guidance, Margo, that are for providers, urologists, around what pain medications and, and pathways we should use. We do have a, a, a um, guidance document, which um, we do share with patients that tell patients what to expect to get post-discharge. Um, my question, though, for you, um, Carla and John, is, one of the things that we recommend, uh, especially in patients who are stented, is administration of an anticholinergic, or I guess Mirabeg run a beta-3 agonist to deal with some of the stent-related bladder symptoms. And Dr. Ghani, Kershid and I were reflecting earlier today that that was not something I routinely did before creating these guidelines, whether it be due to you know thinking it didn't work or concerns for retention. Can you guys tell me how you incorporate drugs like that into your practice, especially in your stented patients? After you, Carl. John, do you want to go ahead? Okay. Um, So I typically, so it's interesting because my uh, nurse practitioners were taught by another urologist to use the um, the extended release. I I like to use less medicine. So I I will just do the shorter acting, uh, for example, oxybutin, because it's readily um, affordable. And I will do like, um, uh, instead of the 10, I'll just do the 5BID up to TID. So patients are taking that and dosing it. Same with peridium. I'm going to use the lower dose, the 100 versus the 200. That way that gives patients uh, they don't feel like they're um, needing to take them or that they're not constantly dry all the time. And plus, um, you know, with the effects into the uh, memory, I just want to be careful with uh, oxybutynin use as well. How about you, John? Yeah, no, I'm very similar. I think um, anybody I'm worried about, like so uh, elderly gentlemen, very large prostates, um, I typically avoid the anticholinergics if I can. Um, the just like you, the peridium, either low dose or even over the counter, azo, um, that, that kind of thing, um, from a cost perspective, but yeah, most, uh, females typically we will, unless we're worried about dementia and, uh, some sort of cognitive problems. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, I, I think the way that uh, I usually approached it was, you know, trying to avoid it in men who might be at risk for retention. Um, but I do find that there's benefits, uh, in those, uh, you know, in those patients uh, who who previously have had a pretty bad experience with with ureteral stents. Um, so uh, 
I think a question just came in from the chat from from uh, Dr. Higgins saying every practitioner in my group stents after ureteroscopy, regardless of stent status. How would you recommend addressing this with my partners to help decrease stenting rates? That kind of dovetails into a question. Thanks for asking a very difficult question, former fellow Andrew Higgins. Um, but John, you're in practice now. Um, you were trained in a very specific way uh, and then came to us. How have you incorporated that into your practice? I know that it's not a, you know, a zero or a hundred, but what, what are you thinking? Yeah, no, I've, um, yeah, I was trained in residency to send everybody and in fellowship a very different way. Um, and I think it's, Dr. Higgins is a very um, nuanced question. And I think it really does depend on the practice culture. And it's a, it's a good thing to kind of get an idea as to what your colleagues and so forth think, because you're not on call 100% of the time. I, to be very frank, a lot of times, if I know I'm on call, probably my stent emission rate goes up. Um, and if there's patients that have my, my number or I'm worried, um, then I'll go, I'll do a stento mission and they will call me instead of, uh, the attending on call. Uh, that's kind of just a personal thing just to, to avoid the idea of potentially leaving somebody else with the bag at the end of the night. Well, um, that brings us to the end of the discussion. I appreciate all those who are um, sending questions in via the chat. We'll try to get to them uh, as we go. Um, where we're going to transition to now uh, is, uh, I think, one of the more exciting components of this webinar, which is um, four sets of uh, curated videos highlighting some surgical techniques that may help uh, uh, limit the need for ureteral stents. Um, so with that, we'll turn it over to the next part of the uh, webinar. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to be discussing um, what I have coined no-touch technique for ureteroscopy. It's important that we consider uh, the pros and cons of taking this approach. The pros of this technique are it's a simple setup utilizing must disposables. It can be done without an assistant. It may facilitate a lack of fluoroscopy, so minimizing radiation exposure, minimizes the need for rigid cystoscopic evaluation, and may facilitate stent-free surgery. But we should consider that there's a learning curve associated with this. It may not be a suitable uh, approach if uh, uh, concomitant, con concomitant bladder procedures are needed, like bladder biopsy or cystalophallopaxy in larger prostates, and a male can make this more challenging. As you can see, my setup uh, is somewhat minimalistic. I use a digital uh, um, ureteroscope uh, that is reusable. Um, have a, a TUR tubing that will be attached to a, a pressure bag set to 150 centimeters of water. Uh, and uh, really, that's, uh, that's it. Um, wire would be available on standby, typically using a straight hybrid wire. A 200 micron laser fiber is my go-to, and a 1.9 French helical basket are in the room but not open. So what we're going to begin with is the access to the stent naive ureter. This is a patient who has a, um, a seven millimeter mid ureteral stone. You can see that I'm actually doing cystoscopy using the flexible ureter scope with a penis on stretch. Uh, and after we've navigated through the prostatic urethra um, and entered the bladder, um, you can see that I'm going to navigate to the patient's ureteral orifice, which can be seen by pulling back and navigating to the bladder neck. Um, Looking over to the side, we can see the patient's left ureteral orifice that will be coming into view here um, uh, shortly. Um, uh, and uh, access can be obtained directly by navigating the flexible ureteroscope into the ureteral orifice, uh, the so-called no-touch technique. And you can see in this particular case, uh, no fluoroscopy uh, or a wire was needed um, to gain access into the ureter. And as we track up the ureter, um, what we will encounter here, uh, that's a bit of a red herring, is that mid-ureteral stone, which we can then treat with lithotripsy. 
So this is that same um, uh, uh, patient. Um, but as we've moved on now here, um, you can see that we're beginning with a tripsy on that stone. So again, using a 200 micron homium laser fiber with low uh, energy settings since we're in the ureter, I'm here using less than 10 watts, typically 0.8 joules and 10 hertz. Using long pulse, if you're using a Moses laser, you could be using Moses distance mode or some sort of pulse modulation. And my goal here is really just to fracture or crack this stone into pieces um, uh, that either I can basket out or in some cases, if we get a bit lucky, um, we can actually irrigate um, uh, from the ureter. Um, uh, and you can see these fragments are kind of following the irrigation down. Um, uh, I've now switched to short pulse in this same stone. That's a bit more violent of a, a, a pulse bubble. And so you can see that the fragments are actually following the ureteroscope down the ureter. And, and what this facilitates is in some cases, lack of even needing an assistant or a basket, um, just the pulse of the laser and the irrigation pressure is bringing these fragments down and towards the ureterovesical junction. Um, where they can be liberated into the bladder for later evacuation, uh, either with a basket or with a cystoscope. So a nice technique when you've got a bit of a capacious ureter where you can work at a bit more of a, a, a short pulse settings to facilitate these fragments being washed out, as you can see here. Now, many ask the question, you know, we saw a favorable case in that first uh, vignette, but what about when you can't advance the scope past the ureterovesical junction? That can be due to angulation of the ureterovesical junction. It can be somewhat diminutive. Um, I find in my clinical practice that this is almost always due to just an, an, an intrinsically narrowed ureterovesical junction, which can be pretty easily bypassed um, by using our traditional techniques in a wire. So what I'm showing here in this video as actually having your assistant place, in this case, a straight sensor wire, hybrid wire through the ureteral orifice. And then rather than needing to use fluoroscopy here, you can actually just advance your scope with direct vision through the ureterovesical junction, and then immediately thereafter, remove your wire. Uh, and after applying that pressure, you're now past the ureterovesical junction, flow going back on. You can see that we've navigated past the distal ureter there. And we never needed to use fluoroscopy and we can complete the procedure again, kind of uh, adhering to a uh, 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 no touch technique. Um, this can obviously be done in the pre-stented ureter as well. And it can also be done with uh, uh, semi-rigid instruments. So this is a patient with uh, that was sent to me for a six millimeter distal ureteral stone. They had been stented for a positive urinary tract infection some weeks ago. And this is me now proceeding in the exact same fashion, passing the semi-rigid ureteroscope directly through the urethra, prosthetic urethra, and then into the distal ureter. And you can see that this is very easily facilitated in the setting of pre-stenting. Uh, in this particular case, the stone had migrated with stenting up into the renal pelvis, which is why we don't see it. But this underscores the fact that this approach can also be taken using a semi-rigid instrument in a pseudo no-touch technique. Um, to access the ureter. So I would encourage this for, for distal and mid-ureteral stones uh, where a semi-rigid scope is used, the same technique and principles can be applied. Uh, finally, uh, in this last case, as I mentioned, um, we began with the semi-rigid instrument and found, unfortunately, that the stone either had passed or seemed to have migrated up into the kidney. So now I'm doing the exact same approach, which is now in a pre-stented ureter, taking the flexible digital ureteroscope navigating it up the ureter without the need for a safety wire or any additional fluoroscopic guidance. And you can see under direct vision, you can navigate right up this nicely dilated ureter um, in an effort to try to identify uh, the stone, which has been um, pushed into a lower pole calyx.
So uh, that would be the approach that I would take in a setting where you're evaluating the distal ureter first. If you're more comfortable using a semi-rigid instrument, that's certainly possible. And then switching to the flexible instrument to survey the rest of the pelvic allocele system. So take-home messages from the no-touch technique is that it is feasible in most patients and may help avoid a stent as we're not heavily instrumenting or dilating the uh, distal ureter, which is, I think, where a lot of uh, urologists do feel a stent is necessary. This can be done with both flexible and semi-rigid uh, scopes and can be done in either a stent-naive or a pre-stented ureter. The off, I find that often the barrier to success is the ureter vesicle junction. So using a wire and direct vision uh, to bypass the UVJ is uh, certainly a reasonable technique. If we employ that technique, obviously, we can do this without using fluoroscopy if a stent is not placed. And certainly, I would never advocate uh, uh, um, uh, avoidance of defaulting to our traditional over-the-wire techniques in the settings of failure, whether this be due to anatomic limitations, the intrinsic narrowing of the ureter vesicle junction, or anything that requires further dilation or use of the safety wire. So with that, I thank you for your time. And I will then turn this over to Dr. Mantu Gupta, who's going to be talking about some of his techniques using the thulium fiber laser. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dow. I'd like to talk to you about thulium fiber laser for a ureteral stone. These are my disclosures. I'd like to start with this case presentation, a 32-year-old female with a history of Crohn's disease who presented with one-month history of intermittent dysuria and right flank pain. Her urologic history is that she had passed right ureteral stones in the past when she was pregnant six months ago. She had a CT scan performed in June, which showed a right six millimeter lower pole stone and a nine millimeter right ureteral stone. For the purpose of this discussion today, I'll be showing the right ureteral stone treatment. This is her right distal ureteral stone. This is the lower pole stone. We start with ureteroscopy. On my bench, I usually don't even have a cystoscope. I'll use the ureteroscope to survey the bladder, and then I'll do a no-touch technique, as Dr. Dow has talked about, and go directly into the ureter under direct vision. I find this traumatizes the ureter less and allows a quicker recovery for the patient. It also allows us to identify any pathology that we see along the path to the stone. And you'll see in this case, as we're going up the ureter very slowly and gently with gravity irrigation, we see there's a polyp underneath the stone. This is an impacted stone, but we are able to bypass that polyp and get right to the stone. We, we performed a study looking at what position is best for ureteroscopy for ureteral stones. We found that reverse Trendelenburg position decreases the retropulsion of the stone. But in addition to this, it allows the fragments to come out faster and easier and allows for us to use less basketing to remove the fragments. You'll see in this case, we decided to use the reverse Trendelenburg position. Once we are up in the ureter, we place the patient in about 20 degrees, reverse Kandelberg. I use a 120, 150 micrometer fiber, and my settings are one joule and two hertz. And here we are with the one joule and two hertz. Now, as you know, the thulium laser is more of a dusting laser, and you don't get as much fragmentation effect as with the homium. But I find with the one joule and two hertz setting, you're getting as close to fragmentation as you get can get. And in fact, the pieces, uh, fragments that break off with the thulium fiber laser are actually smaller in size than you get with the homium laser. So there's less need for basketing if you're very careful and pay particular attention to where you are on the stone. I find the two hertz setting is what allows us to do that. The stone is not vibrating around, but we can clearly target specific areas of the stone that we want to target and get a nice ablation. 
The point here is not to try to break the stone into tiny, multiple pieces, but to get tiny fragments to break off that can float out as we're doing the procedure. Because of the reverse Trendelenburg position, many of the fragments are flying out as we're doing the procedure. In fact, I use a dual channel ureteroscope with the outflow open. And the outflow allows these dust particles to come out as we're continuing to have some irrigation going in. I don't use anything other than gravity irrigation for almost any of my cases, uh, and I don't like to use access sheets if at all avoidable. And here what we're doing is painting the outside of the stone, and we're continuing to shave that stone down. And you can see even though it's a nine millimeter stone, it did not take very long to break the particles out. And I find that as the saying goes, haste makes waste. If you try to break the stone faster using higher settings, then you'll find actually that it takes longer to get all the pieces out later on at the end of the case. You're actually saving time by going at a lower frequency, which seems counterintuitive. This is a pretty hard stone. You can see with one joule, it provides plenty of energy for popping little pieces of stone off at under control, complete control. We keep going around the surface of the stone and not try not to go into the center of the stone. This stone does this type of laser, the TFL laser, doesn't really fracture the stone as the homium does, but allows you to have control because little particles are breaking off at a time. You can see here we take our time and we have plenty of space around the stone. And even with an impacted stone, I know there's been a knock against the thulium fiber laser. Uh, for fear of damaging the ureter. But I think the fear for, of damaging the ureter is when there's not enough space around the stone to work. And also when you're using higher frequency settings, we find the lower frequency settings gives you that control and that preciseness you need to avoid soft tissue injury. I always try to disimpact the stone if possible. So there's some free space for the stone to be working for you to be working in. And here we're now down to the final couple fragments here. And we can continue under very precise methods to break these little particles smaller and smaller and smaller. Many of these particles are floating out as we're doing the procedure because of the reverse Trendelenburg position to the point where there's hardly any fragments left to basket. This is the final look here before we start basketing. And now we're going to basket the stone fragments that are left. You can see there's an inflammatory polyp that has developed around that stone but that doesn't hinder us. We can basket a small piece of stone here to send for analysis. And here's the inflammatory polyp, we're going past that. The inflammatory polyp, I find, does not hinder me from doing a stent-free procedure. We take the fragment out, we make sure there's no fragments left. And in this particular case, I also went up and got the left, uh, the right lower pole stone as well. Here's the stone fragment here that we removed. And in this case, we're able to do this case, entire case, without a guide wire, without a sheath, without using fluoroscopy, and without a stent. So I find, in summary, the TFL laser allows us to fragment hard stones by creating small particles that are smaller than the homium. And contrary to what was promoted, high pulse energy, low frequency, 2 hertz is better. There is less retropulsion with the TFL laser, even in the short pulse mode, which is what I used here and I use for all my cases. I find the TFL is quicker, more efficient, uh, and allows dusting of even hard stones. Carbonization and flashing is not a problem at the right settings. There is completeness of treatment and fewer small particles left. And the 150 micron fiber is actually faster and creates smaller particles. You can go to the lower pole with the 150 micron fiber.
wireless, shapeless, tentless, floorless, floorless ureterosity is the future. And now I'd like to hand over to Dr. Tani. Thank you, Dr. Gupta, for that fantastic uh, video-based teaching with the thulium fiber laser. It gives me great pleasure to speak about uh, dusting technique for urethral stones with the holmium laser uh, and also the use of pulse modulation. My disclosures are noted here on this slide. The teaching objectives of this uh, talk today are to go through my technique of semi-rigid urethroscopy and laser lithotripsy for treating distal urethral calculi, to go through some homium laser settings for safe dusting and fragmentation, to explain the rationale for using uh, advanced uh, pulse modes such as pulse modulation for fragmentation, and some tips on patient positioning, fluid dynamics, and fragment evacuation, all with the goal to uh, allow for stent omission after urethroscopy and laser lithotripsy. Can you safely omit a stent after treating distal urethral calculi? Multiple randomized control trials have been done looking at this very specific uh, issue. The first one was done in 2001 by this group uh, in San Antonio, and the answer was yes, you can. Another study was done uh, by these investigators in India, also looking at whether stenting can be avoided after uncomplicated urethroscopy for distal urethral calculi. The answer was yes. Another randomized trial, this time from Egypt, looking at the same thing. Another one from a group in Turkey, looking at the same thing. And another study from Morocco, also looking at urethral stenting after uncomplicated urethroscopy for distal urethral stones. And more recently, this study came from India, also looking at the same thing for distal urethral calculi less than one centimeter. Can you safely omit a stent? And the overwhelming answer from all of these multiple randomized control trials is, yes, you can. And my principles of dusting technique for urethral stone, especially when treating as uh, distal urethral calculi, I use a semi-rigid urethroscope. And most importantly, I place, I place the patient in a reverse Tendelenburg position. This aids with reducing retropulsion. And more importantly, it helps with fragment evacuation, as you can see later. I place the patients one week before surgery on an alpha blocker, and I, I do this. There is good systematic review evidence to show that preoperative alpha blockers helps with urethroscopy, especially reducing the need for urethral dilation. And in this study on the right-hand side from China, they found that postoperative alpha blockers, especially even if you leave small fragments after urethroscopy, helps with excellent stone-free rates and aids with stentless urethroscopy. And as a result, I give patients one week uh, alpha blockers before surgery, and, for, and I ask them to continue it for three weeks after. The first page, uh, case I'm going to present is an eight millimeter uh, distal urethral stone that was not pre-stented. We begin by uh, using uh, low pulse energy settings uh, with moderate frequency. I'm using a 200 holmium fiber. I'm using the holmium laser. And in this uh, particular case, I have access to pulse modulation. And I'm using a setting of 0.3 joules and 30 hertz using the Moses contact mode. And you can see that the stone is being disintegrated. The key tips here are to keep the fiber central uh, to, the, to the ureter. 
Uh, that is the safest area. And as the fragments have got smaller and smaller, as you withdraw the ureteroscope, you're able to evacuate those fragments. And uh, one of the major reasons for that is that reverse Trendelenburg position and the ability to sometimes uh, coax some of these fragments out with these low pulse uh, settings, almost like a laser suction effect. Um, and also the use of fluid dynamics and some scope maneuvering will allow to help evacuate those fragments from the distal ureter. With the, and I, and in these scenarios, I, I do not use a, a basket at all. I find that can be more traumatic. And sometimes if there are fragments stuck at the ureteral orifice, manipulating the guide wire can help evacuate those fragments as well. And so you can see here, we're able to dust this stone and, and, uh, in, in no time at all. So, for a dusting technique for ureteral stones, I use low energy and moderate frequency. I keep the, the laser fiber on the center of the stone. Uh, and then we, we do not use high power settings in the ureter. We keep the settings less than 10 watts. With the goal of the movement and the fluid dynamics, you're able to do a Venturi effect. And this is what's been seen in mini PCNL. And you can do that in semi-rigid ureteroscopy as well. As the fluid overcomes the stone and you withdraw the, the, the scope, the fragments follow you out. And this is a very nice way to clear fragments. One thing about pulse modulation, it's a split mode with the laser. And we studied it here at University of Michigan. And the major uh, advantage compared to a standard mode, as you can see from these videos on the left, is reduced retropulsion. And on these videos on the right, you also see that when you use Moses mode, the, the stone is very still with very little retropulsion. The last case I present is a, uh, uh, is a 12 millimeter distal ureteral stone that was uh, pre-stented. And in this case, you can see, again, similar philosophy. We're staying central on the stone. We're using a low pulse energy at 0.3 and 30 hertz. Occasionally, I might switch and use one joule and six hertz if the, so I can do a flip between dusting and fragmentation. Uh, and But if you don't have pulse modulation and you don't have access to a high power laser, using 0.5 joules and 10 or 5 hertz is, also works uh, very well. And you can see here, we're breaking the stone into small, small pieces. And by withdrawing the scope back, we're able to evacuate the stones from the distal ureter. And in this case, especially when you're pre-stented, the ureter is much more dilated and it also helps with this type of uh, technique where we're able to evacuate the stones very easily. And at the end, you can see we've assessed the ureter and the last fragment is coming out and now the ureter is reassessed and all the fragments have been evacuated without the need for a basket to withdraw any of them. So the principles of the technique are as follows. Place the patient reverse Trendelenburg, modulate the inflow for irrigation, stay central in the ureter, use the settings of 0.3 or 30 or 0.5 and 5 or 1 joule and 6 hertz, but keep the power under 10 watts, intermittent laser firing, advance the scope beyond the fragments and withdraw it to evacuate the fragments with the Venturi effect. Sometimes jiggling the scope can help. Manipulating a safety guide wire helps expel the fragments at the ureteral orifice. And this is ideal in the pre-stented ureter. I want to thank you for allowing me to present this. And if you're interested in learning more, there is an open access video in the Urology Video Journal where we take you through this technique in more detail. Thank you. And now I want to hand it over to Dr. Amy Cranbeck, who will tell us more on video-based teaching and ureteroscopy for stent emission. Thank you, Dr. Cranbeck. 
Thank you, Dr. Ghani. Uh, it is great pleasure for me to be here today to speak to the group on my approach to stentless ureteroscopy. I do have several disclosures. I'm a consultant for multiple companies uh, and commercial entities. When I was asked to put this talk together, I actually went through some of my old slide decks and I came across a talk from Dr. Segura, who was a great mentor of mine. And it was an entitled Complications of Ureteroscopy and How They Made Me a Better Person. And I thought it was extremely fitting since we're talking about pushing the edge of uh, endourology, doing stentless ureteroscopy. And I think we've all learned from our complications. And I hope to share uh, what I've figured out over time in this realm. When I did some research on stentless ureteroscopy, I found Smith's textbook of endourology fourth edition, and they discuss not placing stents after ureteroscopy, and they give a seven-item list of um, indications to place a stent. Um, so if you have perforation, they do state if you dilate over 10 French, which I don't agree with, but the rest of them I do, edema, um, tight ureter, infection, large stone, solitary kidney. I added bilateral ureteroscopy because I do quite a bit of bilateral ureteroscopy and I feel like you need to place at least one stent uh, in one of the ureters. But most of my decision making is really made based on the pool's scoring system. So no lesion in the ureter um, or superficial lesions, a zero or a one, I think it's totally safe to omit a stent. Uh, when you get up to submucosal lesions, bruising, tearing, or perforations like a three or severe perforations or uh, transections, obviously you're not going to place a stent. Uh, and there's quite a bit of data out there. There's been a one systematic review and meta-analysis in 07, which indicated stenting caused more lower urinary tract symptoms, but really no difference in complication rates. However, there was a trend towards um, patients with a stent having lower rates of ER admissions and, and um, admissions to the hospital. And then a Cochrane review in 2019 had very similar findings. Uh, it had over 23 randomized clinical control trials, and they found that stenting may reduce the number of unplanned ER visits, need for narcotics, stricture rates, hospital admissions, but the evidence was extremely weak, and the unstented patients had less pain at 4 to 30 days, and there was no difference in UTI rates, secondary interventions, or immediate postoperative pain. So the data is, um, you know, helpful, but it doesn't really guide us much. So when do we not place a stent after your ureteroscopy? Well, in my opinion, each one of these cases that I've shown here could be stentless. Um, this is a pre-stented patient. This is a, the second one is a distal ureteral stone only. The third is an ectopic kidney with a lower pole stone. And the fourth is a proximal ureteral stone with minimal hydro. Um, and it all really is dependent on the ureter. So my approach to stentless ureteroscopy, most patients who come in with a stent prior to their ureteroscopy, I will try to omit the stent afterwards. However, if they have the stent placed for significant infection, I will place a stent afterwards because I do not want an infectious complication. Stenting is not dependent on the use of an access sheath in my practice. I'll use a 10-12 up to a 13-15, and it all depends on the size of the ureter and how accommodating it is. When I complete the ureteroscopy, the ureter must have a pull score of zero or one, nothing higher. 
I immediately administer Ketorolac 10 milligrams at the end of the procedure, and the patient is discharged with scheduled diclofenac 50 milligrams TID, and if they can't tolerate NSAIDs, then they get a Medrol dose pack taper. In the last 18 months, I pulled my urbitoroscopies. There were 417 cases and 16.8% were stentless. So not all patients meet the criteria. The overall 90-day complication rate for all 417 patients was 11.6%. And most of them were grade one, except for two patients who had went back to the OR for stent placement after their stent was pulled or if it was omitted. So very low. So here's some video. This is a patient who had a stent prior to their ureteroscopy. We used an access sheath. We're looking down the ureter at the completion of the case. And you can see that this ureter is wide open. There's no lesions. There's no edema. Um, it's very safe to leave this patient without a stent at the end of the procedure. Now, here's another case. Uh, this is a patient who was not pre-stented but we did your ureteroscopy, had a very accommodating ureter. We used an access sheath. You can see, again, maybe a little bit of edema, but really zero to one on that pull score, and it's safe to leave this patient without a stent at the end of the case. Now, this, isn't, this one's not so straightforward. This patient was not pre-stented. We used an access sheath, but the ureter was much tighter. It's 1113 access sheath. You can see that we had maybe a pulse two. We have a lot of edema, bruising, but no perforation. So this patient, I think, is a candidate for stent on a dangle extraction string, and the stent can be removed in 72 hours, uh, again, with that same anti-inflammatory protocol. And then finally, this case. These are two separate cases. I got the perforation uh, image from Dr. Segura's talk because I don't like to take pictures of my perforations. Um, but no, this is a perforation image from his talk and then another video of an impacted stone. A lot of edema, inflammation. This patient is not going to do well without a stent. We know we need to leave the stent in longer for both these patients, at least 14 days um, you know, just to ensure that there's proper healing. So in conclusion, in my practice, practice stentless ureteroscopy is possible with minimal complication rates. I use intraoperative inspection of the ureter as a guide. Pull zero or one patients are great candidates, and you must inspect the ureter at the end of the case. Anti-inflammatory medications are the key. I think it helps a lot. And with appropriate patient selections, repeat stenting rates are low in my practice at around 1%. And I will just end with this quote from Dr. Segura. When the going gets tough, the tough puts in a double J and quits. I hope you found this uh, helpful. And now I'm going to turn the podium over to Dr. Dows, who will be doing a roundtable discussion. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Amy. A bunch of excellent talks. Uh, I think, you know, the, the video-based learning here is really what we can kind of latch on to um, to improve technique. Uh, so I'm joined now by uh, Drs. Gupta and Ghani, who you saw give excellent talks, uh, as well as Dr. DiBianco, who is a poor man's stand-in for Dr. Amy Crambeck, who has another engagement, um, but can uh, comment as an expert uh, in this space. I want to start... Um, I would think maybe, you know, without going down a rabbit hole, you know, we saw two great talks on competing energy techniques uh, that we use in ureteroscopy, the thulium fiber laser, which is really taken off um, versus 
the holmium laser, which, you know, Dr. Ghani and, and many others have popularized. What are the general uh, settings that you're using, Montu, um, with the thulium fiber laser? And is that set for the ureteral stone? You said one joule and two hertz, or are you using something different for renal stones? Dr. Ghani, I know that you're using the TFL laser as well. I just love to know what your guys' settings are for ureteral and renal stones. Yeah, thank you, Casey, and uh, thank you for inviting me in, uh, to participate in this webinar. It's really great to see how the experts do it. Um, I, you know, as I spoke about in my video, I, I that is my go-to setting is one joule and two hertz for ureteral stones, um, but I'll also use that for renal stones as well. Uh, I always start with one joule and two hertz, and once it gets down to particles that are relatively small, I'll then switch to one joule and ten hertz. Uh, to get those particles even smaller. And if I'm truly trying to dust and aspirate everything and not leave anything behind, then I might go to 0.5 and 50 uh, up in the kidney, not in the ureter, but up in the kidney uh, to, grant it, to get it to fine dust. Because if I get it to fine dust and I can aspirate that dust, and I find that's uh, really getting the patient stone free. Uh, so that that's my go-to setting. In the ureter, I'll usually use one joule and two hertz. It's very rare that I have to go above one joule, uh, even for the hardest stone. Uh, and then if there are many particles and I have a good space to work in, then I'll go to one joule and 10 hertz to try to get them smaller. Uh, but most of the time, it's not necessary unless it's a really large stone. And Kershid, we saw that you're using about 10 watts, the holmium laser in the ureter. I, I believe I saw using 0.3 and 30, somewhere in that range. If you're using the TFL, are you using similar settings to that? Or what are, what are your settings for the, the, for the thulium laser? So I, I, for the thulium laser, I have been using 0.6 and 6. Uh, for the ureter, and then Mantu introduced me to one joule and two hertz, which I, I have to say is a fantastic setting. So I maybe had less patient than Mantu, so I'm doing one joule and four hertz, but somewhere between one, two, three, and four. I think that that and you, you, it's interesting depending on the system. If you've got the quanta thulium, you can't do one joule and two hertz. It won't actually give you that that parameter range so you have to do one and three uh one of one of the things i would say about the 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 thulium and i think the, the community needs to understand this dusting with with holmium has been considered low pulse energy and a high frequency but with thulium fiber laser it's a low peak power wavelength laser so the highest pulse energy, like a one joule that Mantu was showing, will still chip the stone like a dusting. So the concept of we must have low pulse energy to dust with thulium, well, actually, you can have moderate and high pulse energy like one joule and still dust. So, so in the kidney, I have to say, I'm not using one, one and two. I'm using two different settings. And I agree with Montu. If you have the higher frequency settings, like 50 or 100, you can get fine dust. So I may do 0.2 and 50, uh, 0.5 and, and 20 or something like that. But the other setting that I do really like in the kidney that I find more efficient, which Mike Lipkin recently in Duke uh, published on and spoke about, is one joule and 10 hertz in the kidney. So... But I think the key thing to understand is that a one joule with a thulium behaves like a 0 0.2, 0 0.3 with a homium. Would you agree, Montu? I would say you're, you hit it on the nose there that thulium is a dusting laser no matter what setting you're using. So there's no need necessarily to go to the low energies uh, and high frequencies. You can do the same dusting technique with 
higher energy and lower frequency with more control. So, um, you know, I, I would type into the chat, you know, what the settings are for the TFLs for all of our 110 participants, but I think it might crash the server because this is a, the jury's out on this uh, in the endourologic community and the wider community at large. But I do think seeing, you know, that we're almost going back to settings that we utilized with the old 20 and 30 watt homium lasers with ethulium really underscores how different the pulse energy is between and the peak power is between them. So John, we haven't heard from you yet. I think the two things, interestingly, that I took from these talks, uh, the first two talks, which are the most simple things that I could do in my practice that I don't do regularly, are reverse Trendelenburg position for ureteral stones and use of an alpha blocker a week before surgery. Can you tell me how you might be implementing those things in your practice? I, I Easy things for me to consider that are just elegantly potentially going to help me with my cases. Yeah, no, I've, um, when I can do it, the alpha blocker, a lot of patients, to be honest with you, are, are previously on them. Um, but if they're not on them, I, I definitely consider it and see if I can start it. Like Dr. Ghani said, a week beforehand, continue it. So you can give them a month, month worth. Um, so yeah, I definitely find that it's helpful. The Trendelenburg, I've, I want to do it more. I tend to, I tend to start the case. We get a little, fragment that flies away and you're like, darn it, I wish I would have put the patient in Trendelenburg. And then we think about it and then we try to do it. Um, but no, I mean, and, and I, I definitely try to do these things. I, I'm aware of them and I, I practice them when I, when I can, and then I regret it when I don't. And, and that's really intriguing, isn't it? Monty, you're, you've done a study, right? You've actually done, I mean, I've, I've just been doing it because I, I think it, it's helpful and I feel it's helpful, but you've actually studied this and you found, I looked at you when you presented your poster that you had less operating room time with that position, right? Yeah. Because the pieces are frying out. And I think Casey showed this with his video earlier, how the pieces just fly out, especially with the homium laser, you have that uh, suction effect that you were talking about, Kershaw, that the fragments just come out on their own. But I think that's even accentuated more with reverse Trendelenburg. Uh, so it makes it even faster to expel those pieces without having to use as much basketing time, which is what ends up taking time in the end is grabbing each piece of that basket, pulling them out, going back and forth, back and forth. That's what ends up taking time. If you could save that time, that's great. And I want to, you know, I think some of the great chat that we got um, uh, and thanks for everyone putting in the questions. We're trying to get to them as they come either live or in the discussion. But, you know, a lot is said about the safety wire. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, would never argue with someone who uses a safety wire for every case. I do think, though, that there are certain situations where it can be a hindrance. And that's what I was trying to get at in the chat. And Montu, you showed very well. And Kershid, you did to an extent, though there was a safety wire in one of your videos, that sometimes the fragments, if you want to leverage that Venturi effect, that kind of the, the safety wire does need to be manipulated because stone fragments will get caught up along the safety wire. And so if you have a nicely dilated ureter and you're using a laser like the homium laser, I'm actually switching, you know, Kershid talked about using um, uh, Moses contact mode, which is obviously uh, uh, using uh, uh, pulse modulation. I'll actually go to just straight short pulse at the end when I want to get those fragments to wash out because that high peak pulse or high peak energy is going to actually allow the stones to follow you out. And sometimes a safety wire can inhibit that to an extent. So the other question that I had from the talk, and I think I'd like to focus on, I, I wish Amy was here, but again, we've got the poor man's Amy, John DiBianco. That's what we'll call you from here forward. Um, Hi, praise. Is anyone here using Medrol dose packs uh, uh, after, after, you know, 
access sheath use to facilitate to, to limit in, infl inflammation. I've not honestly seen that before. And that was something that I uh, found really interesting. So I use Bedrol dose packs in patients who are trying to pass a stone and are desperate to avoid surgery. Mm. Um, I don't have enough evidence to say it's effective, but I know it's done in Europe quite a bit that they use steroids for facilitating stone passage. And I don't think the uh, evidence is there to support it. Um, so I don't do it routinely. It's a rare patient that I'll use it on, but I've never, I don't have any experience on using it post-surgical. I mean, steroids give you a little bit of a, uh, other benefits to, you know, they give you a little bit of a high. Um, and, uh, so there's other possible things that could, uh, account for how they're beneficial. Uh, so I guess this is something that should be studied. One, one comment I had, Casey, was I'm looking at uh, Dr. Cranbeck's video. She did a case with an access sheath that, and then visualized on the way out and said, look, it looked all right and didn't leave a stent. Yeah. And I, and I don't think the patient was pre-stented. John, are you doing cases with access sheets in this scenario and then thinking of no stent? I mean, that's not, you know, I'm just wanting because I think everyone is mostly stenting there, including myself. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really just depends on the ureter. I mean, if there's if it's wide open and the axis sheath goes easy, even if they're not pre-stented, then that's that's usually enough for me. I, I'd say that the exception for sure. Um, but if if they're pre-stented and an axis sheath, definitely um, consider um, stent omission. But if they're not pre-stented but they're behaving like a pre-stented, then that's that's usually good enough for me. So uh, keying in a bit more on Amy's talk, I, I found, you know, much of what we're doing around stent uh, omission in music, or at least seeking to do that is trying to be pragmatic, trying to let the evidence guide us. Um, Amy, I think, did a really nice job of highlighting that she uses the uh, the pulse scale, right? The uh, grading ureteral injuries to determine when stents can be emitted. I think in my clinical practice, it's often gestalt. Ah, oh, the ureter kind of looks okay. I might have scuffed it a little bit there. Um, no fluorid perforation, obviously, I'm going to consider omission. For the three uh, of you, are you kind of trying to adhere to that or even documenting that uh, as, a, as a reason in your notes for stent omission, or how are you judging that? This is a great question. I mean, we we have a trial going on right now that we just started in, in, in music uh, around stent omission. And John will know when he was a fellow with us, we talked about video recording every case and trying to document this visual interpretation, right? Because we, you have urologists all the time say, oh, yeah, the ureter didn't look great. And what is that great for you might be fine for Dr. Gupta, right? So I, I don't document the pull score. I also know that there was a study that's when they tried to look at it, that there was just a lot of variation amongst urologists saying what was a one or a two. So, but it's, but I think it's a really great thing that she brings up because I'm starting the one of, for me, the take comes for me watching this. And this is, I'm learning from you all is that maybe, you know, from now on, if I have an uncomplicated urethral access sheath case, I just need to better quantify the state of the ureter. And I might consider stent emission there just as per what, what she, what she taught. So that, that's my my point of view on pulls. I, I don't know what Montu and John feel. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not an access sheet person, so I don't use access sheets. And I think if you're not using an access sheet, it's rare you're going to get a pulse injury that's greater than zero or one. I mean, just really, unless you dug your laser into the wall of the ureter, it's unlikely it's going to happen. 
Um, but my feeling also on access sheets is if it goes up that easily and that smoothly, that it's not causing any ureteral injury, then did you even need one? Did you have good outflow already that you didn't really need one? So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't uh, document the polls score. I think I'm biased by the those studies, Dr. Ghani, because I just, you know, my interpretation of the number might be different. But I do always put in on my op notes the reason or the rationale as to why I sent it. I think it's helpful in the post-operative setting or this, you know, it's helpful for the entire team to know, you know, what, what was I thinking and what's the rationale? And if they come back too early because they're they're having too much pain, well, you know, DiBianco stented them because there was this that happened. So we can't take it out too early, like that kind of thing. So I think those rationales are typically what's what's most helpful for me. So we got a question from the chat, which I think is uh, uh, as well as an observation. Um, we talk about reverse Trendelenburg position for uh, facilitating ureteral stone material staying in, in view, but also the fragments washing out. I think to the question, yes, Trendelenburg position also also has its uses if you're treating a renal stone, um, specifically with some table tilt, um, uh, translocation of stones to the upper pole for dusting or for fragment extraction, plus or minus rotating um, uh, the, the, the patient towards the side of the calyx can keep the stone located in that uh, location. So that's a great observation. Um, uh, the last question that I wanted to ask to the group before we um, go on to the next session is, um, what are your thoughts on this pressureless ureteroscopy. I, I saw that from, from uh, Montu's talk. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a pretty consistent utilizer of, uh, of a pressure bag and 150 centimeters of water. Wh wh where are we thinking that this is going? I, I'll, I'll tell you, for me, if I'm using urethral access sheath for big kidney stones, I use high flow pressure irrigation. I have great vision, I have great outflow. If I'm not using urethral access sheath, I have transitioned to gravity low flow irrigation, like what Mantu is doing. And I'm using low power settings with the thulium to dust. I'm getting fine fragments. It is taking longer. I mean, it takes, I think one thing I have to say is I think it takes longer than homium. And, and I'm just going to be out there. It takes longer. But, but I do notice that the patients are more comfortable with the lower flow, more gentler procedure. And, and I can do stentless in that scenario. So that's that's my take on, on that. Um, well, I think we've uh, had a really great discussion here. Um, we're gonna um, uh, bring up the home stretch now of this webinar, and then we'll have a bit more time for discussion at the end before closing. So with that, I'll turn it over um, to my uh, good friend and uh, fellow music urologist, Dave Wensler, uh, who's gonna be speaking to us about stent duration uh, as well as stent material. So take it away, Dave. Thank you, Casey. I'm David Wensler, and I'm gonna be talking about optimal stent duration and materials. My background is I'm a University of Michigan uh, Medical School graduate in 2007, go blue. Uh, then stayed local for residency at Beaumont and Royal Oak, and then did an endourology robotics fellowship out in San Diego. I'm in private practice with comprehensive urology and have been for the last nine years with somewhat of an endourology robotics focus, and I'm active in music, as most of you know. So previously tonight, we heard a talk about leaving stents out by Dr. DiBianco. Sometimes that's just not possible. So how else can we reduce stent morbidity? Well, two ways to do it are stent duration and materials. This first slide shows that stents are commonly placed in Michigan after you read oroscopy. The mean rate of it is 75% of the time. All the way to the right on this graph, we see that there are some urologists who place stents universally 100% of the time, 
regardless of how the ureteroscopic stone surgery goes. So again, when leaving stents out isn't possible or practical, what do we do to reduce morbidity? We've all been in this situation, whether it's a message through your patient portal or a phone call or a phone call from the emergency room. Had your ureteroscopy with a stent two days ago. Despite all the medications that you've prescribed, they have terrible pain and they're wondering if it can come out sooner. You know, it had been previously suggested that you wait five to seven days, but they just don't think that they can wait that long. Well, in the spirit of college football season, which just started for us, you can quote Lee Corso and say, not so fast, my friend. The AUA in 2016 came up with their surgical management of stone guidelines, and they recommended minimizing stent duration to reduce morbidity. The guideline panel recommended three to seven days of stenting. This was based on some smaller studies, including this one out of the University of Iowa, which was small and had 79 patients with stents on string. 51 of them were removed day three and 28 on day seven. And we found out that the rate of a post-operative event within three days that included a phone call to the office, a clinic visitor, an ER visit was significantly higher, 20% higher in the three-day group versus the seven-day group. To get a larger size on this, we did a study in music, which was published earlier this year in the Journal of Urology about optimal stenting duration. This looked at stents that were left on strings, which were typically left a shorter amount of time, and those that were left off. This graph here shows the median stent dwell time by practice when there was no string, and we see that it's anywhere between three and about 20 days. The mean rate of stent placement with a string in again, in music, is 38%. And there are a certain number of people, about 25% of urologists, who never place a stent on a string. We found in this study that when the stent was left on a string, the median dwell time was five days. The ER visit rate on the day of or day after removal was 12.5%. When there was no string, we had a longer median dwell time of nine days, and the ER visit rate was lower at 7.9%. This led us to conclude in music that if you are going to leave a stent, you probably should leave it for five days or more. The second part of my talk is talking about stent material to try to reduce morbidity. This was a study done by Olivier Traxer out of uh, France, where they placed a standard Percuflex stent versus the Imogen Hydro stent by Coloplast, which is a silicone stent, supposedly softer material and leads to less morbidity. Their body pain scores decreased by 25% in the silicone group, which is good data. However, when looking at this, this was day 20. Day 20 was the day of stent removal, which is not practical in American medicine. Most people will not want to leave stents for a total of 20 days. So in the interest of fine-tuning that as well, we at Music are doing the better lithotripsy and ureteroscopy evaluation stenting or BLUES trial. This is single-blinded, the patient doesn't know what kind of stent they get, and randomized to assess patient outcomes between the polyurethane, which is the more common stent, and a silicone stent after ureteroscopy. The primary objective is the patient-reported outcomes, so it uses the Music Pro questionnaires at day 7 to 10. So far, we are currently enrolling in the BLUES trial, and we thank all the practices who are participating. So in summary, the optimal dwell time is a minimum of five days in, from what we have seen. Stents on string can be commonly used, uh, but they can result in early removal, even accidentally. 
we found out for longer stent duration, we have good data. Again, the study in France, you can consider using a silicone stent. So we already have good data that says you could use a silicone stent in a reconstructive surgery, such as a pyeloplasty or ureteral reimplantation. And currently, there is an ongoing music randomized control trial that hopes to better investigate this in the U.S. population. Thank you for your time. And now I'm going to turn things over to a roundtable discussion on these issues. Great. So uh, I'm joined now by uh, Drs. Montu Gupta, Dave Wensler, Carla Witzke, and John DiBianco. Um, you know, I think uh, the thing that jumps out to me most in this last session is, you know, we can do everything that we can to try to omit stents. And I think, you know, on uh, you know clinical trial data that we're working on in music may help to inform this and, and provide more level of evidence here. But we undoubtedly are still stenting the majority of patients in the state. And so I think this was a key talk by Dave. And the first thing that jumped out to me was we hear all the time in music meetings and from colleagues, well, I put a stent in, but I only leave it in for two or three days. And then I just have the patient pull it out on a string. And I think what was most profound about what Dave presented and we saw in Chad Tracy's work from Iowa is that shorter stent duration does not necessarily mean better outcomes for patients. And in the music data, we see that ED visit rates are higher if stents come out before day five. So my question to you is, as we're getting uh, messages from our patients, hey, doc, I can't tolerate this anymore. I've had a stent in for two days. My reflex had always just been, all right, fine, pull it out, we'll be fine. And almost inevitably, those people bounce back to the ER. So how do you counsel those patients when you're encountering that in the context of the data we just presented? Why don't you start, uh, Dave? I mean, this is, uh, this is a challenging area, you know, because we only have so many medications and, and, you know, things like that. I mean, I try to always point back to the data and me personally, like one of the kind of tricks that I use is I don't send people home with all four medications, for example, you know, Tordal, Flomax, Peridium, Oxybutynin, all these things. I might send them home with like two. <laughs> and then if they're miserable or something like that, when I try to, I'm trying to like nurse them to day four, day five, you know, I might try to add a couple of them on or something along those lines. That's a technique that I've used. I have no data, by the way, to back that up. Yeah, we're off the reservation here, I think, a little bit as far as data. Carla, what are you doing in this scenario? Just tell them, yeah, pull it. We'll, we'll just we'll, we'll wait for you in the ER. Or do you try to talk them through? I mean, based on these data, will you tell the patient now, hey, we actually have some pretty compelling data that says, we don't. although you're uncomfortable, it's not dangerous. We don't want you to take it out early. How do you approach these? Yeah, I think it's really important. And just kind of looking through that data, um, I am someone who usually uses the two day with a string um, because it is so uncomfortable to have that stent in place. Um, it actually, Casey, makes me think, well, then why am I even leaving it? If it's if it should be in for five days and I'm only leaving it in for two, why even leave it in? And, and I think that that will really help me in the future to to really convince myself I need to leave the stent or not. So um, I I think it's uh, something that I would talk with patients about too and say, I know if, if I'm going to leave the stent, it's going to stay for five days. Here are some of the medications and here we have data to support that. If, if I leave it, if you take it out any sooner, you may be right back in the emergency room. So I, I think that's really important to look at this together. Yeah. Bantu and John, anything to add to that? I mean, I typically leave my stents in seven to 10 days. Uh, that's just what I've done. That's how my OR time works out. Uh, and I've gotten burned like you, Casey, when uh, patients begged me to take it out early uh, at five days, for example. And then they'll call me on the way home on their car. They're having severe ureteral spasm. And I don't know what it is about about five days where they get that ureteral spasm. But if you leave it a little longer, they don't get it. 
I'm almost, I almost wonder if it's better to take it out really early or later, not the middle. I don't know if they're getting some sort of edema, inflammation, something's happening uh, where they get that spasm. Uh, so I don't know what the answer is, but uh, I use the silicone stents. I know we talked, John, uh, Dave talked about the silicone stents, and that's my go-to stent for almost every patient. And so the number of patients that are demanding their stents be removed early has dropped dramatically, but I'm, I'm wary about moving it early for that reason, for the spasm reason. So just to clarify that point, then we'll go to John. Montu, you're using silicone stents even for a, a situation where you'd anticipate your dwell time would be your standard seven to 10 days. You're not reserving silicone for the three-week stent or anything like that. All comers are getting silicone if you're putting a stent in. Just about every patient. The only exception would be patient that I'm stenting for at a impacted obstructing stone. They're coming to the emergency room and I'm stenting them urgently. There, the silicone stent is not so easy to go past an obstructing stone. It's uh, it's It's got more friction going past a stone. And there I'm using something with more of a lubricious coating, a hydrophilic or hydrophobic stent to put past that stone. John, how, how commonly are you using silicone stents in your practice? Yeah, basically, um, you know, we have silicone stents that have a string and silicone stents that don't. So I think it's it's a very versatile stent. I think I there's really it's my go to stent if I can't. Um, I'm basically if there are patients that have a contraindication, like some sort of obstruction, like um, Dr. Gupta had mentioned. And I think the immediate sort of the short term solution to some of the immediate stent pain is, you know, I do relatively routinely is try to give patients, you know, some IV Toradol towards the end of the case. I found that that is incredibly helpful as far as the, the extreme short-term stent discomfort. And to be very honest with you, I tell patients up front, they're going to hate the stent. And I, I just basically tell them at a minimum of five days. And it, I think that putting in that time early to educate the patient um, so that their expectation isn't, I can call the doctor and he'll let me take it out early. If they're not pre-stented at a minimum of five days. So show of hands to the panelists, um, who is routinely, if they're putting a stent in um, and it's uncomplicated, right? This is not someone you perforated their ureter or something and you want going to take it out in three weeks. Who's using an extraction string, you know, most of the time. Okay. So it's like a, it's a split. So Dave, tell me why you're not using an extraction string. I mean, I think the biggest reason is I've had a lot of experience of these being accidentally pulled out. Um, and I think we've had this, I've had this discussion at a meeting last year and that, you know what I mean? Like you can get pulled out and pack you like, you know, they're waking up funny or, or something like that. And then you think, okay, well it's out now. And in reality, kind of like Carla said, maybe you should just leave it out like period. So I, I rarely leave strings for that reason, just because they've gotten accidentally pulled out or things like that. It's still most of my patients, at least, I don't know about you guys who leave strings more often. Most of them are not comfortable just pulling it out on their own. So they still come to the office. They're still having an office visit. You know, you're trying to avoid an office visit or a procedure. Um, so I, I'm just too worried about them pulling it out. And like I said, they still have to, they still have an office visit afterward. Mantu, what's your rationale? You, you, you mentioned seven to 10 day dwell time. That's a long time with a string. Yeah, that's a long time with a string. And I mean, I, I think... Uh, a string adds to the discomfort of a stent, uh, especially in men, uh, as they get into nocturnal erections and so forth. I think it just adds to discomfort. Um, and really, you know, I don't feel patients, usually it's the two, three days that they're uncomfortable with the stent and then they're starting to get used to it. The symptoms get better. So if you're leaving a stent more than two, three days, I don't think the string's helpful. I mean, doing a cystoscopy and taking the stent out is 
is pretty straightforward for the majority of patients. Um, so one of the biggest reasons, and maybe John and Carla can comment on this, that I use a stent on a string is uh, not so much uh, the patient's ability to avoid an office visit, but my ability to sleep at night and know that it's going to be pretty unlikely that we forgot a stent. Um, uh, so Montu and Dave, what's your protocol? Like, do you have a stent tracking thing? Do you have a list that you keep? Um, I do not because I'm, I'm relatively confident. I have not been burned yet. Knock on wood that someone's going to wait two years with a, you know, string sticking out their meatus, right? How are you guys tracking your stents? John, you want to answer that first? <laughs> I think it's you and me that are supposed oh, to answer okay. it too, but I can say, sure, I can, I can answer it. Um, I, I'm, I'm not tracking them at all. And to be honest, I can think of maybe once or twice in nine years that people have come back with, with a retained stent. Um, it's, it's a risky run. Thankfully it's a rare event. I mean, of the, again, I've been in practice for nine years, I've done thousands of stone surgeries. And like I said, it's happened once or twice. Um, so I think most people won't forget it's there because they have symptoms. Yeah. I have a human tracking system. It's called a fellow. <laughs> <laughs> the fellow That's sends great. an email to our surgical coordinator, uh, stating what procedures we did that day, if they have a stent or not, and when the stent's supposed to come out. And then it's the surgical coordinator's job to call that patient, get them on the schedule, uh, for the stent removal. And for every reason she can't get a hold of the patient, she sends emails back, you know, with a checklist. So it's a checklist of the patients and she comments on the checklist until they're all done. We know it's done. So uh, I haven't had a case of a uh, missed dent in, in a few years. That's good. And then Carla and John, you guys yeah, are so Casey, on strings. How, how do you guys secure them? Do you leave them dangling? Do you tape them to the leg? What's your, what's your typical strategy? So, uh, for men to the penis. And then in women, I use the super pubic area and that has significantly improved. I know other urologists tape it to the leg. You're going to pull that out. Women are pulling their underwear up and that's where that happens. If you keep it up above and I tell my patients, if you wake up and you've got a little, you know, string tape to your belly, you know, you've got uh, a stent with a string and, and then I just kind of go through that. And they're a lot more careful when it's on the front of your body than on your leg. You're just, you can see it there and the leg, it just, might you might just accidentally pull it out i was just going to say casey about uh, keeping track of the stents as you know from when you're at our hospital i have the nurses keep the uh, patient sticker and then the stent sticker right the side that it's on the date string no string and that goes to my office uh usually once uh, every month because we have so many people who come to help us out it'd be hard to keep track of that otherwise yeah. also if you didn't do your op note right away you can always just look at that too <laughs> I have a list too. I have a, I have an Epic list it's just cause I'm paranoid and I hate taking out retained stents. So I don't, I don't want to be the culprit of any of those operations in the future. And then I used to tape them to the leg in residency. Um, and I thought we had a relatively high accidental removal rate. And then at Michigan, I learned the, uh, dangle technique and knock on wood. Um, the rate has really gone down. So I, I dangle all of them, men and women. Well, I think, um, you know, a, a lot more is to be learned in this space. If I was to summarize, we I think the jury's a little still out on the silicone stents, the quality of life. Montu, we've been um, tossing around a research idea of looking at um, patient reported outcomes in stent on string. So hopefully that'll be something that we've got coming out soon. But um, I'd like to thank everybody for their participation in all three discussions that we had. And if we could um, just bring up the closing slides, then uh, we'll close the webinar um, relatively on time. 
Um, so, you know, I think where I'd like to start is um, thanking everybody for participating, taking some time out of a, a weekday uh, evening during prime time with family to, to join us and talk about something that's really important to us in, in, in our practice, which is kidney stones. Um, so the key take home messages from the talk tonight are that patient education is critical. If there's one thing that we took from this and, and heard in our patient experiences from more Argo and, and uh, Mike Wittitz, that patients are often unprepared for what's going to happen to them. And that can actually lead to a ton of anxiety and downstream consequences. It's really the simple act of connecting with a patient, whether that be through multimedia or some of the handouts that we have readily available uh, through music urology. And we can, we can um, provide those for you. I think that uh, it's important that as we consider stent omission, that we take a pragmatic approach. Um, we've created guidelines in the state of Michigan, um, uh, which define uncomplicated ureteroscopy. I think that's a good starting point, a very simple starting point. If you're trying to implement this into your practice is to go after the lowest hanging fruit, which is the pre-stented patient. I would maintain that very few of those patients, if any, would need a stent after uncomplicated ureteroscopy. There are surgical techniques, which we've outlined, and we learned from uh, multiple esteemed surgeons today that might facilitate a stentless technique. Um, and certainly we can revisit some of those techniques uh, in the future. If you're going to use a stent, I think stent duration is certainly something that's not commonly talked about and is important. I would maintain that the ideal stent duration is a minimum of five days, somewhere in that five to seven or to 10 day range. Whether it's left on a string or not is up to the surgeon's preference. And then finally, I think the jury is a little bit still out on this in, in routine use, uh, short-term use, but consider silicone stents. Um, certainly, the data would suggest in longer dwell times, 21 days and, and above, but we would hope to have some data soon coming from the state of Michigan from a randomized controlled trial highlighting the use of uh, silicone stents in more usual ureteroscopy. And so with that, um, we'll close the webinar. Um, I think uh, the most important thing that I can highlight is that I am just one uh, part of a, a team um, and the music team uh, is uh, incredibly diverse, incredibly dedicated to quality improvement, um, and really does the yeoman's work as we put together a webinar like this, which is an incredibly heavy lift uh, for a group. Uh, we thank those in attendance, and we look forward to future webinars from our prostate uh, and kidney cancer teams. Um, should you have any questions, please feel free to reach out with us. Uh, and uh, with that, we'll close. And thank you again for attending uh, this uh, excellent session. Take care.